0: All right, well, it's good to be with you this morning. And if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Colossians, back to Colossians. Last week we took a, a one-week break to uh, just touch on a topic that I felt relevant for last week. And obviously I think it's relevant for all the time. Um, but in Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. All right, so I want us to play just one, it's one quick game. We're not going to do a bunch of these, just one. <laughs> but uh, I want you to guess this film, all right? I'm going to give you a couple a line. Your mission, Ethan, you should, as you... <laughs> He's like, you're already on it, man. It's easy. You know, Ethan, your mission, Ethan, if you choose to accept it, right, as it goes, as always, should you or you or any of your I M force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your action. And then what happens? What's the last line? This tape or this audio or this recording will self-destruct in, you know, 10 seconds or something like that. And good luck (laughs) kind of thing. But it, th- that, I don't know if you've seen all of the movies, or maybe if you're old enough, I don't, not many of us in here hardly at all are probably old enough of the TV show version of that as well, back in the 60s, maybe you've seen the reruns or something, but, um, but that show or that movie uh, is pretty, pretty remarkable. I've always kind of enjoyed watching them. It's one of those things where it's like they keep making more of them. You're like, I don't know, what are they on now? Like, am I six, seven, eight? I don't know. I guess it works because Tom Cruise never ages somehow. It's like they can just keep making them because he he still looks the exact same. I saw they were just making Top Gun again. You're like he looked the exact same as he did in the first version in the 80s or something. Uh, it's pretty remarkable about him. And uh, but what I've always found so I mean I love those kind of movies. I love a little action-packed movie. Uh, and I love seeing people go against kind of all odds. You know, like everything stacked up against uh, him or uh, stacked up against their team. And so they're always facing these fascinating uh, missions, you know, that seem so literally impossible, this impossible mission force. And, uh, and, and so what's remarkable is to watch and see how they overcome these obstacles, you know, and like all of a sudden last second, you know, like through some challenges... Maybe a couple people die or something, but at least Ethan survives. Not all of it, not his wife dies. You know, Sorry if I'm spoiling if you're ever going to watch those. But, uh, but you know, you, you watch these movies, and you're like, man, they have so much adversity. But we appreciate seeing how they get through uh, the adversity and how they somehow overcome all odds and accomplish uh, their mission. I, what I appreciate about Paul is it seems like he was given... An impossible task. And Paul was given such an incredible task that it was something that is so challenging, and really it was so challenging that it was really, it actually was impossible. There wasn't an Ethan Hunt that could figure out through his wit and through his wisdom and some wizard of an engineer guy who's like cracking codes for him and all this kind of stuff behind the scenes. No, Paul doesn't have any of those things, but what he does have is the Spirit of God indwelling him. And really what was impossible for him was made possible because of what we're going to see in our passage today. But what's interesting in this passage is that this passage, Paul's addressing one of the main concerns uh, that the Colossian church had. Because if you remember through our series, the Colossian church was a church that Paul had never visited. And just to give you a quick refresher on who Paul is, Paul is this, God reveals himself to him, the risen Savior reveals himself to Paul on this road, as he's going on this road to persecute Christians. He was a Jew, and he was the, like, the Jew of all Jews as he describes himself in Philippians. And he is this persecutor of the church. He's like, this, this movement of the Christians, it needs to be stopped. And so he tries to persecute the Christians. And yet... Here, what happens is God reveals himself, Christ, the risen Lord, reveals himself to Paul, and so actually his name was Saul, and changes his name to Paul, in this conversion story of him putting his faith in Jesus, and now he's been given this impossible mission of going and as a persecutor of Christians, and now to be the, the advancer of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the outsiders of the people of Israel. It's really a remarkable task, and the concern the Colossians had was natural. It's like, if this is this mission, you're this great missionary, why are you in such persecution? Like, if God's real, if God's true, and he's called you to be this advancer of the gospel, why are you sitting in prison cells? And does that discourage you, Paul? Because again, Paul had never visited this church. He'd only heard through it through Epaphras. And so here, that is their big concern. Their concern like, why as a follower of Jesus that God has given you a mission, are you enduring such persecution? And so Paul addresses this in our passage that we're looking at as we're walking through this book of Colossians. So if, if you have a Bible, I want us to read it together. We, we looked a couple weeks ago at the great preeminence of Christ, that He is above all things, that He's before all things, that all things are held together by Him. We learned that Christ is God in the flesh And that he's the creator and sustainer of all things. We looked at these things last week, and now we come to this passage here. And so if you have a Bible, Colossians 1, verse 24. Notice what he says here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I mean, just pause for a second. I know we've only read like a line, but pause for a second. Paul, you're rejoicing in suffering? Like, how is this possible? Why are you rejoicing in your suffering? And notice that he's rejoicing in his suffering. Why? Is he rejoicing his suffering because of Christ? Because of, you know, like, like, I, like he's a sadist or something like that. He enjoys being beaten. No, he's not those things. He's rejoicing. Notice what he's saying. He's like, I rejoice in my sufferings. Notice the next two words or three words. For your sake. He's like, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, he hasn't even visited this church. Why is he rejoicing in his sufferings for this church? Why is he joyful through, and how can he be joyful through suffering? You see, in verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions." Now, you're going like, okay, what, what kind of suffering did this man go through? Well, I want to let me tell you, he outlines it in passage of Scripture in his letters. So just to get, an FYI, too, when Paul has written this letter, he wrote a good chunk of the letters that we have in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not written by Paul, right? Those were written by the different disciples and then Luke. And then Luke also wrote Acts. But then when you start going through the rest of the book, uh, the rest of the uh, New Testament, it is mostly written by Paul. And then John writes some as well and a few others. Um, but ultimately, as he writes these things, we learn that he says, I experienced incredible suffering. We learned that he was beaten with rods. He was taken. He was lashed uh, and, and, and beaten, cruelly beaten, suffered. One, at one point, he was stoned uh, in a town. He goes and he preaches the gospel in a town, and they get stones, and they gather those stones, and they start to beat him, and they leave him for dead. They think he's dead. They actually drag him out of the city leaving him for dead because they assumed he was dead from the stoning, and what do we learn? If you've, if you, if you've, if you've read this before, you know that, that Paul gets up <laughs> and he walks right back into that town to share the gospel again. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake, a viper, uh, he was beaten over and over again. He was persecuted nonstop. He was put in prison cell after prison cell. He was chained to Roman guards. He was st- he was put on a ship to send him to Rome, and that ship wrecks. And uh, over and over again, we see the the suffering of Paul. You go, why? Why would this man, a man who is saying? I mean, like, one of the greatest, probably, arguably, the greatest missionary to have ever lived on the face of the planet, why would he have ex- ex- experienced so much suffering? And how in the world can he rejoice in his suffering? Because if you look at this passage, it continues, but I want to I give you this quote. Uh, if, if, if you've never um, heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, she was someone who uh, has experienced a lot of suffering early on in her, her life. Uh, she was injured with, uh, with a diving accident that uh, paralyzed her, basically from the neck down. And, uh, but she has written so many books. She's like, she learned art and all these kind of things using her mouth and her teeth because she wasn't able to, to function anymore. And she's quoted saying this. I, I, I've always found this quote remarkable. She said, God sometimes permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God, she said. This God permits what He God sometimes permits what He hates to accomplish what He loves. And the idea here is this: is God is allowing this suffering, and and God doesn't God isn't the creator of suffering. Suffering is the result of sin entering into the world. That is not God's design. We know this because remember we're saying Jesus is the invisible is the image of the invisible God. Like He shows us who God is. If we look at the Gospels, we see who Jesus is. We see Jesus on earth hating and mourning over death and seeing his heart burned. He looks on the crowds, and what is the term we often see when he looks at the crowds? You might remember it. He says he looks on them with compassion. He looks on the crowds, and he's, he's burdened by the pain and the suffering. He weeps over Lazarus' death, and, and it's like he even rises him from the dead. Why does he weep? Because he sees the effects of sin and suffering on earth. God hates suffering, but here's what Johnny's saying, is she's saying God sometimes permits what he hates, suffering, pain, the, the, the experiences of this world that are, that are tough, the effects of our fallen nature, he hates to accomplish what he does love. And he loves you, and he loves me more than what we want. Because what would you, I would argue to say that most of us Definitely me included here, want a good life. Like, we all want peace. We actually, what do we do when suffering comes? What are we doing? We're like, run, run away from suffering. I don't want to experience suffering. No one wants to experience suffering. So, naturally for us, we want to run from those things. We want to run from afflictions. But here, it's almost like Paul's saying, I'm running towards it because there's something greater. And he's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up. What is lacking? Now, I, wanna, I think we need to definitely deal with this for a second, because when you read that, you're like, that's confusing. You're like, why would Christ's sufferings be lacking uh, this, the terminology? And so, for instance, uh, Roman Catholics and Catholicism would, would u- try to use this verse to explain purgatory and paying the price. Like, like Christ's payment for your sin wasn't quite enough. And so you're a really bad sinner, and so now you need to go and experience hell for a while, purgatory, and then once you've suffered a bit, then you can experience eternal bliss in life with with Christ. But this is not what Paul is saying. This can't be his point. For one, he just finished in verse 20 and 22 saying the very opposite. Um, he, specifically, Paul also says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, notice this, once for all, like, his payment was, I mean, we sing this song, Jesus paid it all, right, like, he completely paid the price for our sins, there is no extra suffering that you need to experience to get into heaven, Christ has paid it all. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You can't pay the price for your sin. Only Christ could pay that payment. I like how Piper, John Piper, explains it. Um, He says it this way, the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known among the nations. So, for instance, you go overseas and you go to share the gospel with those people. They've never heard about Jesus They don't know about the sufferings. They don't know that he suffered uh, cruelly for their salvation. And so what he's saying is the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known among the nations. They must be carried by ministers of the gospel. And those ministers of the gospel fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. And what he's saying is Paul sees his own suffering as the visible reenactment of the sufferings of Christ, so that they will see Christ's love for them. What he's saying is why ex- he experiences suffering. They can see how he is suffering. And he's suffering, and he says it, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Because he sees it as like, if I can suffer well, that will represent my Savior well to the nations, to the people. So think about how that plays out, right, for all of us. What does the world look at when they see someone who's faced with a a deep, dark valley or they're faced with such difficult trial and they endure and they're amazed by that? They stand back and go like, how is he still moving? How is he still processing this? How does he move forward in, in any way when he's experienced this and this and this and this? It is a great representation of what Christ has done on their behalf. They're saying, he suffered for me. I willingly will suffer for him. But we say that with our mouth, but with our life, do we? I I look at my own self. My God, am I willing to suffer for your sake? When it's so easy here in America? I mean, we live in affluence just by living in America. I mean, we're in the top, like, 5%. Like, I mean, think about it. If you just have one car own one car and you might like well I don't really own it I partially own it right but like you have access to a car you're making payments whatever you have a car you're in like the top five percent of the most wealthy people in all of the world if you combine all seven billion or however many people there are I mean we have so much privilege as Americans and as people who have heard the gospel have had access to the gospel but here's the problem with that because it's so free there, it's easy to just go through this life and never experience real suffering. If you go to the Middle East and you see what those people, when someone gives their life to Christ, what they have to experience, it's remarkable. Uh, one of my friends, his name is Sabu, he's a pastor at the tr- church. I, he's my age, we're the same age. He grew up Hindu. And, and, and in the home that he grew up in, uh, his brother got saved and his, his parents were angry and upset as he had left the home and he had he had gone to college and he had accepted Christ as his savior in this Hindu home and so they sent Cebu to go convert the brother back like hey go convince him to come back and what actually happened was he goes and his brother (laughs) shares the gospel with him and he puts his faith in Christ his parents shunned him didn't wouldn't talk to him wouldn't visit him they treated him as if he wasn't a family member anymore His dad tragically died, and they let him know, and he came back home. And he said, when I came to that funeral and was at the home, people looked at me with so much shame. They wouldn't even hardly talk to him. You see, in other cultures, it is a big deal to give your life to Christ because you will experience suffering. But yet in our lives we do experience suffering, but not this kind of suffering. We can we can connect in some ways. I mean all of us and some of you are going through suffering even now. I feel it too in our in my life with my with my wife Amanda and our family. Uh, but here what Paul is saying is like Christ has been afflicted for us. I, kinda, I find it joy to suffer with him because I have been joined, united with Christ. In his death, I'm joined with him in his death. I'm risen with him in his resurrection as well. And so Paul goes on saying this, and look now, he continues on in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Again, he's experiencing this suffering so that these people can know the word of God. Notice what he says in verse 26 the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, here's what he's saying what is this mystery? I mean, I don't know about you, I I like a mystery sometimes, right? Like, I I like a mystery on a TV, I don't like a mystery in my life. I'm like, I need to know, like, tell me, tell me what's going on. I don't want, I don't want to be, I don't want to be told what, and like, be surprised. I don't like surprise birthday parties. Reminder, I don't like surprise birthday parties. I know I turned 40, just let me know in advance or something, okay? Uh, Surprises, right? Like, but, but this mystery, like, what is this mystery? He describes it right here for us. He says, Notice it in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. You see, the, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, this mystery is Christ. It's Jesus. It's, it's telling us that all of history, you know, this book here, I'm in Colossians here, all of these pages right before it, All of the Old Testament is pointing us to Christ. The prophecies of Old Testament were telling us a Savior is coming. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming. Everything in the Old Testament, the story of of Goliath and David was pointing us to Jesus. The stories of the judges, as you're reading the judges and you're seeing the the fallout of of a human condition and their, their downward spiral, all of that was pointing us to a Savior, Jesus. And he's saying this mystery... This thing that wasn't made visible yet has been made visible in Christ. And here's the glorious thing is it's Christ. Actually, when you put your faith and you're united with him, it's Christ in you. The spirit of the living God comes and indwells inside of you. And he's saying, this is the great mystery. This is the beauty that that people should be able to. And here's what he's saying is ultimately this is we need to hear this. I need to hear this. Scripture is not about a rule book. I think there's a tendency to look at Scripture and be like, it's a rule book, like it's a, it's a playbook for life. Like, let me just read it, and I'll learn how I should live and interact my life. Are there principles in those things? Yes, but the document itself, Scripture, is about Christ. It is about an eternal God who has revealed Himself to humankind in Christ. And He's saying that this Christ, as a follower of Jesus, comes in and He indwells you through His Spirit. And it's about Him. But here's this great part, the mystery isn't just about Christ, it's about Christ in you. People, and here's the thing, people should be able to look at our lives and could only describe us as mysterious. What I mean by that is like family members and co-workers, neighbors and friends should look at our lives in the way that we forgive people. That the way we live generously with our resources, that the way we would, you know, go about this life forgiving and, and, and the way we interact with suffering and all those things, people could look at that and they're just like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to explain that person. Like, it's just a mystery. It's a mystery that the way they live, the way they interact, the things they, they do, the things that they treat, the way they treat people. Um, I love this story. I'd heard it, I've heard it a few times over the years, but William Borden He was a young man who was the heir to the Borden Milk Company. Um, And he was this heir. I mean, it was all going to fall on him. He would have all of it, this whole huge company. And and we learn it from his journal that he had had written, that he walked away from all of it to be a missionary in Egypt. He was there a total of three months before he contracted meningitis and died. He kept a journal, and someone towards the end of his life asked him, Was coming to Egypt a big mistake? And the story goes that he grabbed a piece of paper towards the end of his life and he wrote these words No regret. No regret. And if you go today, I mean, it's, it's inconspicuous, it's not like it's a big deal. I mean, he was there for three months, but if you go, he was buried in Cairo in Egypt, and on his tombstone, it reads this short, uh, the short dates of his life. Short life lived, and then there's this one line It says this, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Because you'd be like, why would you? I mean, the world would look on that and go like, why would you give up what you had. You had every resource to your, you were going to be, you were going to have the keys to the kingdom of your family business. You had everything. You could just go forward with that and, 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 and live a, maybe a luxurious life. You could live a, a good life in the life, in the eyes of the people in the world. But apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You see, our lives should be proclaiming. All of it is worth it because of Christ. And so the story, the verses continue in verse 28. He says this. So here's why Paul, he's saying, here's the, I'd be mean, like, I've, I've been given this ministry. I experienced suffering, but I'm doing this for your sake. I'm wanting the gospel to spread like wildfire. But here's the content of my message. He says this in verse 28. Him we proclaim. I think there's a lot of people who proclaim themselves. There's a lot of ministers proclaiming to be ministers of the gospel, who make a name for themselves. It's easy for musicians too, you know, bands and everyone's to easily make a, 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 a name for themselves and proclaim themselves, make themselves look good. It's easy for, for me to get those thoughts in your head of trying to look good and impress people who are listening to you speak. It's easy for those things. And Paul says, it is Him, Christ, we proclaim warning. Notice what he does. It's interesting what he says here. He says, warning everyone. It's like, why not just share the gospel? Why not just share the good news? Like, stick to the good news part. Why warn people? He warns everyone. Notice this. He's warning people, (laughs) warning them of coming judgment. Like, look, your life apart from Christ is worthless. Put your faith in Christ. And he says he's warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Notice this, what he says. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, uh, when I, when Amanda and I, almost fifteen years ago, it'll be fifteen years ago this summer, uh, when we um, uh, set our vows, and we got married, um, before like the way we decided to it, we had, we had drawn really close during a season of cancer with with Kay and. Um, while we were in college, I met her. I met Amanda my senior year, her freshman year of college, and that's the year um, that, that Kay found out she had cancer. And so we had a professor. His name was Dr. Martin. He, was, he was a, became a close friend to us. He would just pray for us. He would find, he would ask constantly, how's Kay doing? How are things going? And it's like, he's this professor. He's not supposed to really care. He's just doing his job, right? He's just invested in us, and he prayed for us. He, to my knowledge, he still prays for me every day. And so we, we wanted to have him be a part of the, the wedding, and so we had him do this part, that's not, it's kind of unique to weddings, you don't you don't see this very often, but they did this charge to the groom kind of before uh, even, I can't remember if Amanda was already there or not, I'd have to watch the video, watch the tape, but um, they did this before we kind of really started fully the ceremony, and and he, I just remember, I mean, I just remember feeling like, Not like I needed to run away, like I was definitely staying put. I mean, I'm like, I can't lose the opportunity to marry this woman. But um, I just remember feeling the weight because he started putting this weight on me of saying, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you read Ephesians 5, you see how Jesus says how a husband, just like Christ, comes and he's presenting his, the bride of Christ, the bride who, to, it's like God wants to present her as a pure and holy and blameless to God the Father, and, he, and, and he's standing in front of me in this, in this wedding ceremony, and he's telling me, Eric, Amanda, like your goal should be to be able to present Amanda as more lovely in Christ's eyes, as more passionate about Jesus because of her being married to you. And I'm like, oh, uh, are you sure? Like the weight of that started hitting me like crazy. Like, are you sure? I'm like, I'm still going to stay put. But like I started just feeling the weight of that charge of that. Like my responsibility in marriage is to present my spouse as more endeared to Christ, as greater love for him by, by her being joined to me. That my kids as a parent, that my kids, I could present my kids to Christ as loving Him, be passionate about Him because they were my my children, that I cared enough to spend time with them. Listen, this is our responsibility as people, but here's the thing, I feel the weight of that as a pastor, of like, man, I want to see you guys more mature, more passionate about Christ, that I could present you to Christ in a better way because you were a part of Redeemer Community Church. This is what Paul is saying. It's like, we proclaim Christ alone, it's Him, it's warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And here's what he says, this is what I toil for. For this I toil, struggling with all, notice I love how he phrases this. He's not, he's, he's real, he's smart with how he writes. He says, we may present everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, I mean we see the struggle the, the work of Paul, but he says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Again, remember, the mystery was Christ in you. He's like, I struggle and I toil through the power of God in my life. And he's like, I, and he didn't even visit these people, he's not even met them. And this is his heart. And because he, he wants to present them to be more mature, man, that's what I want for us. I want us to grow. I don't want us to just stay content, to just go through our life and kind of have Jesus be a part of it, one foot in the world and one foot out, or one foot with Christ and one foot out in, in the world. I want us to be all in. I want us to be like Paul where I'm like, man, I'm all in. I, I strive and I toil and I struggle with everything of that God gives me, the power that he in, in gives me. And notice what he says. For I want you to know, chapter 2, verse 1. I right want you know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be, notice this, they may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Man, I want you to see Christ so you can see, have full wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here he's saying, I want you to experience it. And here's how you experience it. You experience it not by learning some morals, like do's and don't do's. You learn Christ. You understand who he is. And you find this out in scripture. Again, this is all about him. He's teaching us. He's showing us. He's he's pointing to Christ, this great mystery as he's describing it as. And he's saying this and here's the warning in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your fa- of your faith in Christ. So how do we mature Real quickly, how do we mature as a body of believers? How do we grow? How do we become more like Christ? How can we have this kind of passion for the lost and for the people around us? How can we love our neighbor as ourselves? We were talking about this on Thursday. How do we do these things? How do we grow in these areas? Ultimately, he tells us in this passage, he's saying this. Look at verse, again, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face. Again, these people haven't even seen him. He hasn't been there. He hasn't visited their church. He says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. The unity of the church is how we can grow. We grow in relationship to one another, connected by Christ. Christ is the head of the church. We're going to talk about this in in our Discover Redeemer class in a a few minutes. But here he's he's telling us that, listen, it's the community of believers. It's the point. You're not meant to do this life alone. You're not meant to just sit in your room and just read your Bible all day and never interact with the church and other believers. You're meant to be in relationship. And notice what he's saying. Their hearts would be knit together in love. Love for one another. Try to remember it was, it was in mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis talks about this verse and talks specifically about this. The idea of praying for someone praying, and and he's saying this, he's like, continue to do good to someone, to continue to show love to someone, even if you don't love them, and here's what he said, he says, as you do that, what will happen is you'll eventually grow to love them, but just do the work of showing love, continue to show love to one another, show love to your neighbor, show love to your spouse, show love to your kids, show love to one another within this church, be kind, be patient, and then notice what he says here, how else do we grow? We grow by encouragement, encouraging each other, He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and then notice how this happens, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We we do this by being saturated in the Word. It's easy to convict myself, it's easy to try to convince you with plausible arguments or try to convince you to read your Bible more, You try to make you feel bad about it, like, man, I didn't really read my Bible this week, but listen, I just want to encourage you, try just a few minutes a day, start small, start anywhere, start with just like a, like, like, don't even have to read a full chapter, maybe it's a paragraph, maybe it's just a verse at first, just start somewhere, and here's the thing, is like, I say this over and over again, people ask me all the time, like, like, you know, I, I want to have, I want to read my Bible more, I want to try to read it and understand it, I'm not, I don't have a clue what it says half the time or whatever, but <clears throat> what should I do? I'm like, you know, because people will be like, all right, you should read your Bible every day kind of thing. It's like, well, that's great, but to me, it's like, what reading plan should you read? The one that you'll actually do. So if that means a paragraph a day at first, a paragraph. I don't want to be like, hey, read four chapters a day, and if you read the three to four chapters a day, you'll read the whole Bible in a year. That's probably a lot for, uh, for most of us in this room. It shouldn't be because it's about 25 minutes or so a day of just reading our Bible. But here's the thing. Is like, But if you're not going to be consistent in that, start small. But read Scripture because in Scripture is how we're going to understand what he's saying here. Understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. How do you know Christ? You know Him through His Word. He has revealed Himself in His Word. And my other challenge this morning is this. Is what are you actively doing with the people that you have influence over? co-workers, neighbors, family members, kids, parents, grandparents, people in your life. How are you helping them to be more mature in Christ? As a parent, maybe it starts small and it starts with doing a little devotion every night. Just read a little Bible story. A Bible story usually like can be read in less than five minutes, less than two minutes usually. Like if you're reading like the beginner Bible, Bible story or Jesus Storybook Bible or something like that. But just read Scripture to your kids. Begin to pray with them. Pray for them. Pray with your spouse. Just start with small, like small little things. Start with those people right next to you. They're safe, right? Like those are, that's a safe crowd, right? And then maybe when it comes to coworkers, you start to just influence them by your, your work ethic influence them by your asking them how they're doing and like, you know, like, dude, what happened to you? Why are not you asking me about my life? <laughs> like, they might feel that way at first, but when you show genuine care and you begin to pray for them, like the difference that you can make with the people around you. Listen, let's not take that for granted. Let's not take our influence for granted. Listen, Paul is like, I struggle with everything. You see the toil. It's work. And guess what? You will experience suffering. Don't expect perfect, flawless life because you follow Jesus. Actually, you probably should expect the opposite. But I promise you, and I'll tell you this right now, it is worth it. It is worth it because it is your eternal destiny at stake. We follow Christ. Here at Redeemer, our our passion is to help people joyfully follow Jesus and make him known. It starts with following him. It starts with following him by putting your faith in Christ alone for salvation. And then just reading scripture a little bit at a time. Let God's word saturate your heart and your soul, and what will happen is you will become more mature, and then as your maturity grows, you can help other people become more mature in Christ. That's my hope. That's my passion uh, for Redeemer, and that's my hope through this passage. I love this passage of Paul. You see just his great passion for the lost and for the church. He is struggling with everything in him because he just wants more people to know who Jesus is, and what he's done for them. So let me pray uh, as we close. Father, I just want to thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for the the cost of our salvation, the the salvation that we have that's only because of Christ, the experience of life uh, everlasting because of what he has done on the cross at Calvary. Father, I pray that we would not be stagnant followers of Jesus with one foot in the world and one foot trying to follow Jesus, that we would be a people who are growing, who are maturing in our faith. I know some people who are 80 years old, who've sat in pews for 60 years and are still immature. I know others, though, that have walked with you for their whole life, and they just emanate Christ. I know other young believers who who just started just saturating themselves. with They couldn't get more of the word and they're more mature than most 50-year-olds. God, may it not be about age. May it be more about our walk with you and that you would grow us and shape us. God, may we be a people who model Christ, that our sufferings that we experience in this world would be a, a representation of what Christ has done for the lost and for the world. So may we display your glory. May we display and proclaim it Until you come or our last breath comes from our body, I pray that you'll lead us in this way. Lead us to be a church that does this, that exemplifies Christ. Just thank you for the great mystery, the mystery of Christ in us. We don't deserve your grace, but you've lavished it on us. I pray that we would, by faith, put our hope in you and you alone. So, God, be glorified. Be magnified as we sing this last song together. We want to glorify you. Thank you for the power that we have, the hope that we have uh, that's only found in Christ. We love you and we thank you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.